Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21, and as you turn there, I just want to kind of give you a rundown quickly. The month is odd here. Uh, January is always a little bit different than every other month, and that's because we have, we, we have four standalone sermons, okay? So these sermons aren't going to connect in any way. We're not going through a book. This sermon's gospel-focused. Uh, all sermons are, but this one particularly on the gospel then next week, the 13th, we're going to have Sanctity of Life Sunday where we talk through together from the Scriptures uh, the, the, uh, I, the, the need for um, a resoluteness in the area of the Sanctity of Life, of the right of the unborn to live. And um, so we're going to do that next week. And then the 20th, uh, we will take up Race Relations um, we've done that every year um, for the last eight years. We've, we've taken up, in January, or centered around the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, uh, we've taken up the idea of race relations. And we've seen the, the fruit of that, I think, in our own hearts and minds and in God's diversification of our own congregation. And so that's something we want to continue to do also. How does the gospel, listen, I'll give you a teaser. Racism as much as any sin, is an affront to the gospel. You're going to see it today, in the sermon today in Galatians, but it's true. Racism is an attack at the very heart of the gospel. And so, uh, we're going to take that up. The idea of the need for diversification and the beauty of diversification in the body of Christ. And so, that'll be the 20th. And then the 27th, We'll have Vision Sunday. We had to move the schedule around a lot. That's why the bulletin's off. It's not the bulletin's fault. It's not, not Ann's fault. It's not Dave's fault. All this has been moving throughout this week even. Um, but that's because we don't have a place to have a banquet without borrowing and, and asking and being uh, at somebody else's disposal. So we're fixing that problem. They're, they're working hard, you can see. So we will have this hopefully next January. We'll be able to set stuff up and get it done. But... Uh, we'll have vision Sunday. We'll set the course. We'll look back at what we've seen God do in our midst, and then we'll set the course for a new year uh, in January 27th. And we'll eat a meal together, and we'll celebrate God's goodness to us. Okay, and then beginning in February, from February the 3rd through November the 17th, we will deal with the 41 Psalms of the first book of the Psalter together, one chapter at a time. And so um, it's going to be exciting. The only exception to that will be during the uh, Easter holiday, Holy Week. But even that, you're going to see uh, God has beautifully tied that together in a way uh, just by my planning. When I got to, uh, East, uh, to uh, that time, it's just funny how those psalms all fit together in a sense. So uh, it's really exciting to me. So we'll, we'll work through, and then the last month and a half of the year, we'll deal with the um, with uh, the Advent season again. So you kind of know where we're going for a whole year now. Isn't that fun? All right. Now, the challenge is, will I get that done or not? That's either the challenge. All right. Galatians. Galatians, just, just quickly, Galatians is a letter which Paul writes. He writes it to the church at Galatia, but particularly he writes it to Peter. Uh, Peter, because here in Galatia, Peter is... Dis- is displaying a, even the great apostle Peter still has a flaw in his application of the gospel. 
The gospel he professes, he's not living up to in Galatia. And as you, if you know anything about the letter, it centers around his uh, siding with the Judaizers. Judaizers were a group of Jews who followed strictly. They believed in Christ, but they followed strictly the moral code and the ceremonial code and, uh, and the, the old covenant uh, dietary laws and eating laws. And so they believed not only that they should do that, but that everyone who was in Christ should do that. That if you did not follow the, the, the law as they did in the old covenant, then you could not be saved. That Christ's work... Was, was good enough to save you, but that you must then continue to keep the law uh, to receive the full reward of your salvation. So we have a works-based righteousness in Galatia that has sprung up, and Paul writes particularly attacking uh, this false gospel. Okay? So that's kind of the background. That's what's going on here. You've got the two super apostles, as they're known. Paul and Peter. And they are... Uh, they are at disagreement with one another. Now, I want to say something very interesting before we get started here that you may know or may not know. I believe that there's enough evidence in the Scripture to say that the Apostle Paul and probably Peter, based on what's going on in this letter, followed kosher their whole lives. By that I mean they followed the law according to customary diet themselves their whole lives. That's going to be significant. The reason is, is because Paul, following kosher, following the ceremonial law, argues in our passage today that you cannot trust in that for your salvation. And if you do, you're not saved. You nullify the work of Christ if you trust in kosher or in ceremonial works, righteousness. You're lost. But he himself kept it. And then argued for other people's freedom not to keep it. It's not very different from John Piper who arrived at Bethlehem Baptist Church in 1980. A young man. Uh, and in the code of the church, in the covenant of the church, the membership agreement, that, like we sign here, their people signed a teetotaler act. In other words, you could not drink alcohol and be a member of the church. And Piper, early in his career, attacked that. Piper is a teetotaler. He does not drink. But he argued that that should not be in any church covenant because it was akin to the, the, the controversy of the Judaizers. You're adding something, a righteousness that is, is not righteous. You're adding to the gospel by adding a legislation like that. So he successfully won that. Bethlehem overturned. Their long-standing, hundred-and-something-year church covenant. They had to change it. And I think all of us, I just use Bethlehem as an example, because I think all of us have these things in our lives. We celebrate gospel. We celebrate great grace here. But if we'll dig deep in our hearts, each of us struggles with legalism. I don't think there's an exception in here, as I look around, uh, that did not come from a background that taught a form of works righteousness is rampant in our churches. And this is very thin, it's a, it's a very uh, thin ice because what they, do, what they do is much like what Peter was doing, I believe. No, you're not saved by your works. But, then implicitly, 
To stay saved, you've got to act certain ways. You've got to eat certain things. You've got to refrain from doing certain things. That's the implicit message. You're saved by Christ through grace alone, but to stay saved, to keep the ticket, you've got to do certain things. Okay? That's, the tra- that's kind of the traditional last hundred years of theology that's grown up, particularly in the South. Be good. That's the command of the church. Be good. So today I want to attack that, and I want to talk more importantly, I want to talk about the beauty of the gospel. The title of the sermon is, We Are Justified Sinners. Let's read the text together. We ourselves, the we here, is Paul and Peter. Paul saying, Peter, you and I are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Let me just explain. Sinners, Gentile sinners. What does he mean? He means not that Gentiles are sinners and Jews are not sinners. But what he's meaning is according to the dietary custom. Jews were not sinners according to the dietary custom because they kept it. They were kosher. They followed the old covenant. But Gentiles didn't know about these laws, most of them, and the ones that did know about it rejected it and ate whatever they wanted to eat. So they were considered by the Jews sinners in this way. So that's what he's saying. He's not saying, don't misunderstand, Paul's not saying Jews aren't sinners. No, he's saying according to this dietary law, we aren't sinners But they are sinners. So here he is. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified, declared righteous. That's what that word means. Declared righteous. By works of the law. But through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law... Then Christ died for no purpose. That last sentence, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification, that's that's the other way you can translate that, were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. First of all, we see in this passage in verses 15 through 16, the gospel is grounded in the work of God in justification. The gospel is grounded in the work of God in justification apart from human effort. Let me explain that. What do I mean by that? Martin Luther said, basically, in, all, in his commentary of the Galatians, which is still the greatest commentary on the book of Galatians in print, he said this, If you do not grasp, believe, accept, Remain steadfast in your understanding of justification. 
you do not have the gospel. In some ways, we might say justification is the gospel. Okay, Now, what is this idea? Here, for the first time in the letter to the Galatians, Paul brings up the idea of justification. He says it three times in the first part, in the verb form. Justified, justified, justified. And then in verse 21, he says, your justification comes not through the law, but through Christ. Okay, This is a term which Paul is very, uh, very... Uh, fond of. He uses it in the book of Romans. In Romans, particularly Romans 3, 4, 5, 6, he, he just lays out for us the gem of justification. It is the plank on which everything else builds in our understanding of our relationship with God. Let me tell you about justification, just so we're not um, on different pages. God is a holy God. In His holiness, that means there is no shadow of turning. There is no hint of unrighteousness. There is zero sin in both His moral character and in His action. There is nothing in which God can be assailed on to be a sinner. No one can say, aha, I found it. There it is. God is immoral in this way. God is a holy God. Okay? His holiness burns white hot. There is nothing which can stand in His presence. He is holy. This is why the holy angels are seen to cover their faces in the presence of God. They are not holy as He is holy. And therefore they have to shade themselves with their wings Because they can't stand to be in His presence. They can't look at Him. In fact, the Bible says no man can look at God and live. If you saw God, if I saw God in all of His glory, in our sin, we would be evaporated, in a sense. We would cease to exist. It would consume us. Hebrews chapter 12 says our God is a consuming fire. That's what it means. He's holy. Do you get that? He's not Santa Claus. He's not an old man on a throne just giving out gifts to people. God is holy. The Bible says because God is holy, He requires us to be holy. In our moral character and in our action, we must be holy. For Peter says, quoting the Old, Old Testament, what? God says, be holy as I am holy. Not holy in a secondary sense, but holy as God is holy. Do you get that? In who you are, in your deepest root of yourself, you're morally above and beyond sin. That's what we must be. You think you can come before God? You think you can walk into His presence? All slap happy and giddy? Our churches encourage it. They, they say, oh, just let the sinners come on in. Just come on. And, and, and in that, they mean just, you know, it's okay. Forgive and forget. Move on. God loves everybody. And in that 
is a twist, a perversion that we come as we are and we stay as we are and you just, just kind of live and it'll be okay. God will work it out in the end. Maybe in the end, God will just get up there and say, well, you know what? Hey, we, you gave it a good effort. Come on in. That's the way popular theology kind of presents God. That somehow His benevolence will overcome His righteousness. It will never happen. Let me tell you, if you're here today outside of Christ, God's judgment burns white hot. His desire is only held back by the love of His Son, Jesus Christ. His desire is to destroy all sin and sinners. Outside of Christ, if you're here today, do not make the mistake of thinking God is your friend. He is not. He's only being restrained because of His Son and the goodness of His Son. You're only receiving common grace today because of he, he is good. But don't take that and think, oh, I can just stay how I am. God will forgive me. He'll let me be. No. God is holy, and to be in His presence, we must be holy. So I ask you the question, are you holy? Does anybody in here fancy themselves able to stand in the presence of a holy God in both their moral being and in every action, thought, and intent of their heart from the time they were conceived in the womb has been perfect? That's what it takes to stand in the presence of God and be justified. It takes being perfect. Does anybody in here go so far as to think you match that description? What Paul's telling Peter is, you can't make Gentiles live by a law which they've already broken and then expect they're going to be okay. God will not accept them based on that law because they've already broken it. Their very character is to break it. Their very moral being is in violation of it. That's what he says. Here, the gospel is the ground of the work. Let me give you a definition of the gospel. Gospel is good news. Why is it good news? Here it is. Let me say it plainly. God, who is this holy God, who requires that we be holy as He is holy, sent His Son... As the man, God-man, he was conceived of the Virgin Mary. He was perfect in every way, in his moral being and in his action. He had fulfilled the law. And in doing that, he satisfied his father's legal requirement that you be holy as I am holy. So he could stand in the presence of God. Okay? But he not only did that, he then... In the act of the cross, took your sin, if you're His, and put it on Himself. And He took His righteousness, His goodness, His law-keeping, and placed it on you. He became ungodly so that we might be counted godly. The beauty of the gospel is God did not say to us, become holy on your own. If he had, we would all go to hell. There would be no hope. What he said is, be holy as I'm holy. You can't do it. So I will do it. 
2 Corinthians 5 says, He made Him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might have become put on the righteousness of God. The gospel is that God has done what you could not do in Christ. He has taken what you could not take. He has died and He has been resurrected that you might live. He took your sin and the punishment for it and gave you righteousness which was His and the reward that comes from it. So He did this for who? Godly people or ungodly people? He did it for ungodly people. You don't become a Christian by becoming good. You are made a Christian by Christ and His work alone some of you are so worn thin so tired so beat down because you're trying to become good so God will accept you let me tell you it won't ever happen you'll never be good enough and God never the gospel is God never said be good enough on your own the gospel is he's saying to you I was good enough and I've given you my righteousness so we come to that statement in, in, in Luther's um, explanation of Romans chapter 4, where he says, we are simultaneously justified and sinners. We're still sinners, right? You still don't match up to the law of God, but you have been justified. You've been counted righteous. Legally declared accepted by God. In Christ. So that when you come into His presence, you come clothed in Christ so you can stand. God's not counting your sin against you. He has taken it and He has given you righteousness. It is an alien righteousness. It has been given to you. You did not earn it. You could never earn it. Some of you need to really focus on that. You're still trying to earn it. The ground of the gospel is justification. That legal declaration that says the sinner is made, counted, considered to be righteous in Christ. That's the ground of the gospel. That's the pure definition of the gospel. That he takes sinners and declares them righteous by placing Christ's righteousness on them. Let's look at it here. He uses the term we... We, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. I want to focus in here on verse 16. He makes a general explanation of the work of justification. Yet we know that a man, a person, this is the general explanation, is not justified, not declared righteous by works of the law. Okay, so at the beginning his explanation is simple. There's no man that ever lived that is considered righteous by the law. Romans chapter 3 says, Paul says, There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the standard, and we all fell short of it. All of us. There's no exception. So generally saying, the idea of justification is that all men have fallen short, and God justified, not by the law, but what? In Christ, through Christ. 
through Christ, through faith in Christ, He justified a man. That's the general understanding. That what saves us is the work of Christ. Not even your belief in the work of Christ. What saves you is the work of Christ. What connects you to that work is faith, is belief. And it's not some idea that you believe in. Faith is the action of putting yourself on the line for. Transferring all hope into the bank account of Christ. Do you see that? Faith is not a mental ascent. Faith is, I was here dying in my sin. I saw there was no hope. And God made me to see the work of Christ. And what has happened is that work has saved me. So that I have now moved over here. And my whole hope is in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the free, sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's what faith is. We sang it. Solid rock. Wholly trusting in the name, the work, the person of Jesus Christ for my salvation. Not doing this. This is where most of us are. You were here, you see Christ, you come to a church like Grace, you hear the preaching of the gospel, and you dabble your toe in the gospel. You say, well, I'm not sure if I should fully trust it, but I'm going to partly trust it. I'm going to put my toe over there in it. That's where a lot of you are, I'm afraid. You're just toeing righteousness. You say, well, it feels kind of firm, but you still got all, most of your weight still over here on, i got to be a good person. I got, I, got, I got to buck up and try harder. I got to work. God's not going to love me if I'm not a good person. How do I know this? Because I talk to you. And I live around you. And I live with myself. How many times you get to the end of the day and you say, it's been a terrible day. It's an awful day. I mean, I, I mean this has been terrible. Somebody said, well, what's wrong? Well, you know, I did this. I did this. I, I, I failed in this respect. I didn't accomplish this. I never, I, 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 I never intended when I went to work today to lose my temper, to, to waste my time, to think idle thoughts about a woman. I, I never, but I did it, and now I had a bad day. What we're really saying, we're scared to say, is I don't think God loves me. And we prove that because our resolve at the end of the day is not trusting Christ, but rather reading my Bible before I go to sleep. I, I, I'm going to read enough. I'm going to read until I go to sleep. Then God will love me. We start feeling better because we did something. No. The gospel is I didn't do anything to receive it, I can do nothing to earn it. I cannot deserve it. It's given to me in Christ. So. Now I live every day in the relief and the reclining, in the abiding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I failed at work. It didn't change how God felt about you. Hold on. You did good at work. The woman down the hall wore that unbelievably provocative outfit again. And somebody came down the hall and said, boy, she's looking good today. And you thought, I'm not going to look. 
and you, you, you gritted your teeth, and you didn't look. And you get in your car, and you say, boy, I did good today. God loves me. You're not trusting. You got your toe in it. You still got your weight over here. God loves me because I did good. No, it's fully leaning on Jesus' name. The look, the sin didn't change what God declared. Now, in your hearts, like Peter, like the Galatians, you're saying, oh, Carlton, you're going too far. People are going to be antinomians. They're going to they're say, well, if the law doesn't matter and nothing I do matters, let's just live and let live. You should be charging me with that if I'm doing my job. You should be saying, he's gone too far. If you, ne- if you live in a church where, they, where you never think they're going too far with grace, you're not in a good church. You're not hearing the right gospel. You should be thinking this is too far. The general idea is, in presented to us in 16a, we know that a man is made just. He's not just by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ. Through placing his whole hope in Christ. Secondly, it's a personal reality that we see. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. Because we know generally it's true that God justifies men through the work of Christ, we, Paul and Peter, have believed in Jesus Christ. You see, now it's his personal testimony. Paul, the lawkeeper. Paul, the one who persecuted the church. Paul, the one who was the Pharisee of the Pharisees, says, I trusted Jesus. And you did too, Peter. You trusted Jesus. And then finally in this verse he says, It's universally the case that God does the work of justification not by works of the law because by works of the law no one, the last part, no one will be justified. Psalm 143.2 says that God is just and no one stands in His presence. On the basis of just living. Nobody, by the law, nobody stands. All fall. David said, everyone fails. And so Paul, quoting that, says, We know it is universally the case that there has never been any human on his own power who kept the law and was justified by that keeping. Nobody, not Adam or any of his posterity. No one after him did it. This is the idea. This is the explanation of what justification is. God has on our behalf declared us righteous in Christ. Secondly, we see in this passage that the gospel keeps us in Christ from sin and compels us to live righteously. The gospel keeps us from sinning and compels us to righteousness. But, verse 17 says, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ. You notice that in Christ? In justified in Christ. We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? He knew, he anticipated that the people in Galatia would think he went too far. You declared to them, Paul, that they could be totally just in the person and work of Christ, and now they're going to go out and just live to let live. They're going to live in sin. 
And in doing it, they're going to call Jesus the servant of sin. That Jesus is the one who freed me so I could sin. That's what that means, I believe. The, the charge against the pure gospel on one side is it's too freeing. It, it lets people off the hook too easy, so then they go into sinning. They live in sin, okay? Luther said this also in his commentary on this passage. He said, the gospel is like a great champion horse. You can fall off to the left or the right. The key is not to fall off. It doesn't matter which side you fall off on. Just don't fall off, right? If you fall to the left, you're an antinomian. That means no law. That means I'm saved outside the law, so I just do what I want. I live how I live. I'm free. On the right side, people fall off because they say, I've got to still, God saved me in Jesus Christ, but now I've got to live in such a way that He's proud of me and He loves me and He accepts me by the way I'm living. That's falling off the other side. It doesn't matter which side you fall off on, that's both false gospels. You got to stay on the gospel horse. And what does the gospel horse say? If we, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, then go on living in sin, are we making Jesus a servant of sin? His answer is, certainly not. Why then does the gospel keep us from sin? Verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down. Here he's regarding the idea of self-justification. If I rebuild what I tore down. The old man's life. If I rebuild that, then I nullify the grace of God. It becomes self-evident to people who are in grace, in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, possessing the life of Jesus, that if I go back to living in life patterns as I did before I became a Christian, then I nullify the grace of God. So it's not that we're trying to save ourselves by living like Jesus, but because Jesus lives in us, we no longer want to sin. We should worry less about the gospel making people too free we should worry less about that and more about being in Christ. Because then if you're in Christ, Christ in you will live a holy life. Have a desire to live a righteous life. That's what he says. Is it not? Isn't that his argument or is that me? That's Paul, right? I died to the law so that I might live to God. How am I going to live to God, Paul? I've been crucified with Christ. The old man of sin has been crucified with Christ. The body of sin has been placed on the cross. Romans 6 says we have been crucified with Him that we might live in Him in His resurrection. We've been the old man, the flesh man, has been crucified with Christ. The Bible historically the Bible teaches us that salvation is a historical event. Christ did these things that we might be saved. But it's also an experiential event in the fact that every day we experience the death of Christ and the life of Christ. It's both historical and experiential. So when we rise up in the morning, our thoughts, because Christ is in us, turn to godliness. That's why Paul didn't worry about making people too free. He's preached the gospel and knowing that if the gospel is what they drink deeply of, then Christ will spring up in them and He desires godliness so they will desire godliness. You see? 
He revokes legalism on both sides. In saving yourself and in keeping yourself saved. He says it won't work. Now you know that's true, don't you? I know it's true. How many January 1st have you resolved to not do a particular sin? And every year the list is the same, isn't it? Resolved, 2013. I will not eat sweets to excess. 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Same, same resolution, right? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with New Year's commitments. I think we should make them, and they're good things. But if we try to save ourselves by them, they won't work. Resolved, I'm not going to look at pornography ever again. It's a bad thing. I'm only to have a little fleeting success at it, to be tempted and fall back into it and then feel like I'm crushed. God doesn't love me anymore because I broke my resolve. That's works righteousness. Paul says no on both accounts. It can't save you and it can't keep you saved. Legalism fails. If I try to rebuild what I tore down in Christ, then I will nullify the grace of God. So it's I who have died with Christ in Christ, verse Verse 20 says, Christ lives in me. And the life that I live now in the flesh, I live, what? By faith in the Son of God. My whole existence is wrapped up in being on this solid rock. Not like this, but like this. Firmly planted on Christ and Him alone. Everything I eat, everything I say, everything I think, everything that I am, it's in Christ. Everything, every decision I make, it's in Christ, and it's Christ in me. And that restrains the ungodly living. That crucifies the ungodly living. That very idea, the question in 17a is answered in 17b through 18, and the explanation is given and the application is given in verses 20 and 21. You can't live... With, as a Christian, without Christ? That's the answer. I've placed my whole hope in Christ, my whole person in Christ, but now I'm going to try to live legally. And Paul says, then you nullified Christ and you can't live that way. You must not only believe to get in, you must believe each day that His life might live in you. The gospel is not the front door it's the Alpha and the Omega of our faith. The gospel is not a beginning tutor so that we mature and then we move past it. I hear people talk like that. Like, well, you know, I got the gospel. What's next? There's nothing next. It's all the gospel. Some of us have experienced this outside of the Scripture in the work of Victor Hugo. The, the first, uh, outside of the Bible, the first and primary book I would recommend to you to understand this principle is Les Mis. Les Miserables. It, in French, it means the wretched ones. The poor ones. It's the story of France 
In, in the 1800s, where, where Victor Hugo wrote this and, and released it, you had the upper crust of society, the royalty and the rich that were in the family. And then you had the poor. You had no middle class. Everyone was, in, in a sense, enslaved to the law of the king. They lived under the oppression of the French king. The poor peasants. It was a time of great suffering, starvation. Women prostituted themselves to feed their children. This is the life that was being lived. He wrote his book and then was adapted onto the uh, play and now onto the screen. And I recommend the movie to you because I think it, it does what I taught today and what Paul teaches in Galatians, it does it. It puts it on the screen that you might see it. Let me just quickly tell you, because some of you won't go because it's a musical. I know some of you guys think, I'm too tough to watch a musical. It's boring, whatever. You, know, you need to get over yourself and go. My bet is, you'll cry. I did. Unashamedly. As Jean Valjean suffered in a French prison because he had broken the law. And he did break the law for five years. And then his sentence was up because he tried to escape under the outside of that oppression. Chevert, the officer over the prison in which he served, gave him his release. But listen to this. It was no release. This is what legalism is doing to so many of you. It has duped you. You slaved away under the hard life of works righteousness. And you heard a form of the gospel that said, Jesus will save you, but you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work hard to keep it. When Javert handed his papers to him of release, they were yellow, which marked him as out on parole. And the mark was for the rest of his life. In the musical, he says, you will, you will wander the rest of your life under the sentence of the law. You paid your debt, but you got to keep paying your debt the rest of your life. That's how some of you are right now with God. You think you got saved and yet you still owe God, so you're still working as if you're going to pay Him off one day. You're going to be good enough one day. That is a miserable life. I won't spoil the whole thing. I'll just spoil the end. So, he leaves the prison and finds no rest. No one will give him a job because he's an ex-con. He's still under the law. No one will give him a place to stay because he's an ex-con. No one will feed him because he's an ex-con. Until he comes into the home of a Christian, saintly man. Who gave him bread? Who gave him a place to live? His return, because he still felt the weight of the law, his return to this kindness was to steal the man's silver and try to leave. And he got caught. And they bring him, they drag him in. It's one of the most beautiful scenes in the whole movie. They drag him in before this saintly guy, this priest. And he's there on his knees and they say, did he steal these things from you? And the priest says, no, he didn't steal them from me. I give them to him as a gift. He only did one thing wrong. He didn't take the candlesticks I gave him. 
They're his too. For the first time, Jean Valjean receives grace. Grace. Above and beyond the law, he was declared righteous. Not by his work, but by the goodness of the one who gave the righteousness. He gave it to him. He was still a thief. And yet he gave to him the sentence of a free man. It changed his life. It changed his view of the world. Some of you need that today. You think, I came to Jesus and he saved me, but now i got to keep being good so he'll love me. And what Jesus is saying is, you're nullifying my love for you. You're doing away with the grace I have for you. I give you freely my righteousness. You are mine, now live in me. And that's what Jean Valjean does. The rest of his life, he lives in the grace which was given to him. And he bestows it on another. It's a beautiful story. I'll stop there. Save a little for the movie. Why do I tell you that? I'm convinced the biggest struggle that the people of this church have is, and I have every day, is living in light of the goodness of God. Seeing God not as a judge, but as a father who loves us and who gave himself for us. It is an affront to him to try to pay him back. It's not honor, it's dishonor. It's dishonor. What what am I to do then, Carlton? Let the grace of God live in you in such a way that Christ lives in and through you. He will keep you from unrighteousness. He will keep you pursuing godliness. Because that's what he does. That's who he is. That's what it means to abide in Christ. That's what it means to shadow yourself under the wing of the Almighty. That's what it means to live in the gospel. Live in the gospel this week. Please do it. Surrender to it. Give your life to it. It's the only hope for a lost and dying world. For a lost and dying you. A lost and dying me. Jesus Christ and no other can save you. Not even your own goodness.